today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Darren, who, in his mid-40s, was told his only hope of survival was a new heart. What would have happened if the, you didn't get a heart transplant? More like I wouldn't be here speaking to you, Bill, because the consultants actually said to me, I mean, they told my family, look, you have to prepare for the worst. And even the consultant come and told me that because they had exhausted every single avenue of, of medications, you see. And my body wasn't responding, meaning my body was starting to slowly shut down. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Bill Snadden. On the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Darren tells me about life with his new heart and the years of poor health and moments of near death, which led to him needing the transplant. It was just horrendous for everybody, do you know? I remember my consultant saying to me, this was around May time of 2018, saying to me, mm. look, I'm going to be honest, because that's their job. They have to be open and honest with consultants, which is fair enough. It, it, sometimes mm. it may come across quite brutal, but, you know, they have to be kind of like op- open with you to say, look, this is what it is. Um, mm. If you're here between now and next year, I'll be surprised. And that's exactly what, what, what he said to me. Um, mm. They even mm. bought the forms of, um, because once you have a lot of cardiac arrest and stuff like that in hospitals, they ask you if you want to sign a form, if you have another one, if you want to be resuscitated. You know, because I was having so many, it was getting to that stage, look, it's, it's touch and go whether you'll survive the next one or not, you know what I mean? So they're kind of like mm. giving you your wishes whether or not if you want to, live or, or die <laughs> do, yeah. do you know what I mean so uh, it yeah. was horrendous because mentally your your brain is not in that frame of mind to, to make those kind of mm. decisions like well, well really and truly automatically you want to be safe <laughs> I didn't sign them do you know what I mean it was like no if I have a kind mm. of arrest I want you to I want you to save me however if, if yeah. you try everything and I can't be saved then fair enough but I'm not going to, like, have a cardiac arrest and uh, be left there. Do you mm. know what I mean? I want to live. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Darren, can you take me back to that moment in November 2018? Um, you're in hospital and you've just been told that uh, a heart has been found and it's a match. So after the first attempt, because I actually had two attempts, yeah, and on the second one was the good one. So the first attempt... I was, uh, I was, what, what actually happens is you have to fast until you get to that moment of them saying, yes, it's a match. So I was fasting for the first mm. time for a good 17 hours. You couldn't have any drink. You could have fluids. That's it, water. So it was quite hard. It was quite hard going. Um, obviously, that one wasn't um, a match. It was a match, sorry, but the heart wasn't good enough. Mm. So I waited a week afterwards and another one came available. Mm. Same process. And I was really happy. I didn't get overly happy. For some reason, I was quite relaxed throughout the whole process. Mm. Is that because your hopes had been dashed the first time? Not really, because even when they were dashed the first time round, I wasn't like really disappointed. Mm. I was kind of like, well, at least they're testing these organs vigorously. So you're not getting rubbish inside you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I read in the notes that after the the first heart that came in and they thought it might have been right, but then it wasn't, you said you had a hot chocolate, uh, but you didn't cry. You just got on yeah. with it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, because the 
transplant coordinators, they're very um, uh, sympathetic and they're, they're fairly considerate. So what happens is they come and tell you this news. A lot of people take it quite bad because they're thinking, right, the longer I wait, then the longer my health is going to deteriorate. It means to de deteriorate, meaning, you know, I've mm. got long to live. And that is the, 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 the bargain, isn't it? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I wasn't that disappointed. It was for me, it was like, well, this one's not good enough. Mm. So the next one hopefully will be. Mm. And it was. So take me to that moment when they've said, Darren, it's good to go. Right. So when they came back and said, right, the heart's good. Uh, you're going to be having your transplant this evening. It was, it was like, okay. <laughs> I was, it was weird because I was still like, okay, all right. So I quickly rang my wife first thing, mm. told her, rang my mum. I told her, and obviously we live in Essex, uh, and I was based in Birmingham mm. in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. So you can imagine the mileage they had to do to try and get to the hospital in time for me to go in, to, mm. in surgery, which would be impossible. So I was just so quite confident that, uh, because the, the, the nurses were saying to me, is your wife coming? Um, I goes, no, she is going to come, but she's not going to be here in time for when I go in. Mm -hmm. So I've said to her, I see you when I wake up. And the looks they gave each other was like, you know, you know, this is a big, massive operation. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You can either go, you can go any way. Did they look at each other as if to say, you might not wake up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that was the look. And you, you, clocked, you clocked that look. How did you yeah, feel when you clocked that look? I did. It was like, well, I'm going to wake up. And then we're like looking, thinking, okay, like they were disagreeing with me. They didn't of want course. to say, well, Darren, this is a big um, operation. So mm. I said, yeah, I told her, like, when I wake up, I'll see her then. Mm. Good optimism. And yeah, and they were like, okay, yep, yeah, that's good. Okay, no worries. Mm. And um, I was quite chatty. I was really chatty and I wasn't apprehensive. I wasn't scared. I was just chatty, but I had to get dressed in gowns and stuff. What do you like think that. explains that relaxed disposition there? I think because a lot of through my journey and where I got my grip from to fight this off was I started to get quite faithful with God. Mm. And I think because I started following the Bible and praying more and getting more connected, it gave me that kind of inner strength. Mm. that everything's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. So you take this faith um, into the operation? That, yeah, I took, well, I took it throughout, even before the operation, mm. even when I was going through my cardiac arrests mm. and stuff like that. I took it through that. I mean, you know, to, to survive four cardiac arrests is, is something. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, was, I strongly believe that I'm here for a reason. So everything, what I went through pre-operation, Leading up to the operation, when I got told I was having it, it just seemed like, well, I'm going to be okay. Mm. No matter what happens, I know I'm going to be fine. Mm. So that's what gave me the, the calmness and peace just by following my faith and, and, and living through that. Mm. And you felt that, uh, that, that calmness as they gave you the general anesthetic before you, before yeah, you had the I mean, surgery? They, they, they put loads of needles in you beforehand and they're in really sensitive places, obviously, hmm. the backs of your hands and stuff like that, hmm. um, on your arms, on your forearms. And obviously, the way they do the general anaesthetic is quite cold. 
And I just remember me saying, it's freezing in here. So they quickly got a blanket. And again, I was still quite jokey with them, you know. It was really, a, I just remember it so clearly. It was, it was like a nice atmosphere in there. Mm. And um, they were putting on some more pads on my back and stuff. And when they were putting in one um, cannula, I was like wincing. And they says, look, this is the last cannula we're going to put in. You've got a choice. We can put the rest in, which would be painful, or the cannula we've just put in, I could put you to sleep and we could put through the rest. All right? Mm. So I says, that sounds good to me. Just put me to sleep. Mm. You know, just it's so easy as that. I just wanted to go to sleep and let them get on with it. Mm. And um, they did. They said, okay, no worries. So they, they got me wired up to, to their machine, the injection, what puts you to sleep. Mm. And, um, and that was it. Uh, How long is the operation where the surgeon well, is, is getting this new heart into you? Well, they can take from four hours to 12, 13, 14, 15. It just depends how you are on the table, provided there's no complications whilst they're performing the, the surgery. It could be between those times. Mm. Fortunately, mine was four hours okay. on the dock. Very efficient. Very efficient. I mean, by the time I'd come out, my wife had just arrived. Hmm. Like she, she, was, she was shocked. Hmm. Like she arrived in the morning, um, probably I think about 12.30, 1 o'clock or something like that. Hmm. And um, they said, he's out. And they were saying, well, already? <laughs> And uh, they've gone, yeah, this is, he'd done really well on the table. He was fine. He was, you know, so everything went to plan. Hmm. And that's why I say when my faith followed me inside that operating theatre, it did. Hmm. You know, um, I overheard them saying before they gave me the general anesthetic, saying what team is on, like what surgeon. Hmm. And there's a surgeon there called Dr. Mascaro. And it's one of the best surgeons in the country. So when they said his name, they all said, oh, yeah. They said to me, you've got the best surgeon. Hmm. Do you know? And it's funny that because probably about a few months afterwards, Birmingham QE was on the news. Uh, they're doing documentaries up there with their um, heart patients. Hmm. And he was on there. Hmm. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. When they were saying his name, he was on there performing like a a really complicated, complex um, heart surgery. Mm. So that's what I'm saying. Everything just fell into place for me. It's funny because um, I always laugh at this. When I was in my local hospital quite ill, when I had my first cardiac arrest and when I woke up in intensive care, what, what I was doing, I started, because when you wake up, you're quite disorientated. You don't know what's happening. You don't know where you are. And my wife said I started pulling out the tubes from my mouth, which you're not allowed to do. Hmm. If you start doing that, what they tend to do is um, put you back to sleep to relax you a bit more and then wake you up slower. Hmm. So it was a bit of a mess the first time I woke up. So what she said to me was, when you wake up from your heart transplant, whatever you do, please don't pull the wires out from your mouth. And what do you do? <laughs> no, I tell you what, when I woke up, that's the first thing what came into my head. Hmm. It's, it's strange. It's really strange because she spoke to me beforehand when I told her on the phone, hmm. like, please don't pull the wires out because they'll put you back to sleep if you do. I said, yeah, I won't, don't worry. And when I woke up, that's the first thing what came to my head was, right, don't pull the wires out. Hmm. So 
I woke up quite nicely. You know, I woke up quite nicely. It was it was no problem. I woke up and I saw my wife, and uh, one of her best friends was with her. Mm. Um, what was it like waking up and seeing your wife? Quite hazy, really. It was quite hazy. Um, I can only remember bits. You know, um, like when obviously when I opened my eyes, I heard her call my name beforehand, and my eyes just opened. So when she saw my eyes open, I remember there was like a smile from both of their faces thinking, oh, look, he's up. Mm. And that was it, really. That's all I can remember. The rest of it um, is very, very hazy because you're still trying to, well, it's, it's crazy. Mm. Some of the stuff they were telling me, what I was doing, I said, well, I can't remember that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did I do that? No, I never. Yeah. And this is uh, November 2018. November 2018, yep. yeah, 12th of November. If we rewind back to January 2015, I think it is when you go to the doctor because you've been feeling tired and fatigued for quite a while. Can you just yeah. tell me about that moment? Yeah, um, as you know, I'm, I used to be quite heavily into fitness. So um, I went to the doctor because I couldn't train as hard as I used to, which was quite worrying for me. Mm. I went to the doctor, I said, look, this is how I'm feeling. I'm trying to train. I can't run far anymore. I can't bike ride that far anymore without getting a lot of muscle fatigue mm. in my legs. So they've done some various tests, some scans, shall I say, mm. and they came up with very, very slight abnormal abnormalities, mm. um, but nothing much. In, but, in your heart? Yeah, in my heart, mm. in the valves. Yeah. It says slight abnormalities, but nothing really to worry about, but I'm still going to push it further. Mm. Which he did. I'm grateful he did, you know. Um, he got me a... Um, MRI? MRI scan, yeah. And that's what picked up the actual um, illness. Mm. What was the illness? Amyloidosis. Okay. And what is amyloidosis? So amyloidosis, it's like a blood disease. It has abnormal proteins in your blood, what attaches to, what can attach to organs. Mm. So if it attaches to that organ, it then makes it ineffective. Okay. So what happened with me, it attached to my heart mm -hmm. so that it made it less um, productive. Okay. So it wasn't pumping as well as it's meant to. So that hence why I was getting a lot of muscle fatigue. So the oxygenated blood wasn't going to my muscles um, quick enough. Right. And or, you were um, a young man in your mid-40s at this stage. Yeah, mid-40s. Yeah, I was, I think, about 45, I think, 45, around that age, around that age, but yeah. So um, that was the reason why I was getting the muscle fatigue mm -hmm. and the outer breath was my heart was overworking, okay. trying to get the blood around those muscles while I was working. Mm. And you were working um, as a prison officer with a pretty busy life at this stage? Yeah, I was. I was well, very active. Um, like I said, I've always been into sport, fitness. My job was active anyway, uh, socialising. So yeah, just like a, an active lifestyle really. And then what happens? So when I get the diagnosis from my hematology consultant, she straight away says to me, you've got to stop work. So imagine working like 40 hours a week for 18 years and being told you can't go and work tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> what goes through your mind? I'm like, what do you mean? And I'm like, yeah, you can't go back to work. I'm not with a condition like this. It's quite dangerous. So that'll be it until further notice. Hmm. And it was like that. Do you know, I, I, I was working on the Thursday, 
Went to see her on the Friday. She gave me the diagnosis on the Friday. I was due in on the Saturday, and that was it. Hmm. It was weird. It was hard to get used to. It was weird because being at home, I felt there was still nothing wrong. Although I wasn't exercising, I could still do normal duties. Do you know? Mm. Like when people come to see me, they were saying, well, it looks like there's nothing wrong with you. I said, I know. But it's when, as the years went by, my illness began to progress. Mm. So 2016, 2017, you are living in your bedroom and in a hospital ward. Is that right? Yeah. So, okay. So... The illness is incurable at this stage. So mm-hmm. what they give you to suppress it, to keep you stable, is chemotherapy. So from 2015 to 2018, I was on chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say the back end of 2017 going on to 2018 was my worst time with the illness. Mm-hmm. That's when it really progressed. That was when walking up the stairs was a problem, mm-hmm. taking getting into school was a problem. Everything to do with any kind of physical activity was a problem. Mm. And you would have um, several cardiac arrests during this stage? The cardiac arrest came in April 2018. Okay. That's when all the cardiac arrests came. Mm. Um, But leading up to it, that was when I just couldn't walk, couldn't socialise, I just couldn't do anything really. And I literally, yeah, was living upstairs in my bedroom. Mm. Um, And... A good, a good part of 2018, I was in hospital. So from April 2018, hence, okay, forget the gap of waiting for the transplant. So April 2018 to December the 6th, I was in hospital. Mm. Okay, minus about a month, because they discharged me from my local hospital, a month or two or six weeks, shall I say, mm. I was in hospital. And there was a moment when... Your wife did CPR and uh, effectively saved your life when you were having cardiac arrest at home? Yeah, that was, that was the first one. That was my first cardiac event. And, yeah, she was the one who, who, who saved my life. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, I didn't really even know what happened, you know. Um, hmm. When she told me, I was I just have no recollection of it. Hmm. You know, it was hard for me to actually believe. She, she had to call the neighbours to help her because it was getting very tiring yeah. for her. Um, although the operator on the other end of the line, when you called 999, was saying to stay with me, she just couldn't. Mm. She needed help. So it was um, my wife and the neighbour, mm. the neighbours, um, exchanging to do CPR yeah. because it, it was just so tiring. But because she caught me, at that time, vital time, because you've got about less than two minutes to keep someone alive from having a cardiac arrest because their heart's literally stopped. Um, she caught me at the right time, really, just to keep that blood flowing mm. around my body. Um, any less than that, then, you know, like I said, I, I probably would not have been here. Mm. You know what I mean? And then um, your heart's in such a bad way that it, it would keep going into arrest and you would keep needing the defibrillator to bring you yeah. back. And, and that's what it is. After I had the first one, I went back into hospital. I had like three more in hospital at, on different days. So it wasn't just as soon as I got into hospital, I had another one. It was I was in there and one came again and then another week, another one would come. And they couldn't understand why this was happening 
So they inserted me with a, um, a, a pacemaker, an mm. ICD, mm. which has a, an internal defibrillator. So, Did you feel it shock you? Thankfully mm. not. <laughs> you didn't get the, the jolt. No, thankfully not. However, though, I remember one cardiac arrest I did have when I was in intensive care. Now, I was flatlining, but I hadn't quite gone. And I felt that one. Hmm. I felt what it. What was that like? Horrendous. What described it? Describe it. It was like a mule kick. Now, if, if you've ever been kicked by, you know, mules can yeah, kick. Yeah, no, I, really I haven't. Hard. I haven't recently <laughs> but, been kicked yeah, by a right, mule. Right. Mules can kick very hard. Yeah, um, yeah it was like a, a hard thump in the chest. Do you know? Mm. And I remember it uh, because I hadn't quite gone, but they could see me going. They shocked me. And I remember just shouting because that's the feeling it gave me. It was a shock, you know? Yeah. Um, knowing you're shocked anyway, you, you kind of like give off a little sound. That's exactly what I did. Um, and it's not a nice feeling. No. At all. It wasn't a nice feeling. And all of this leads to a discussion with a cardiologist who uh, suggests that you might need to go on the urgent transplant list. So, yeah, um, after I got discharged from Basildon Hospital, I go to see my um, hematologist in uh, Royal Free, hmm. who's a professor. And he knows the story. He knew the story already. They had updated my notes. And he had said, um, look, your heart has is, is gone through some, a lot of pain damage. And the only thing really is what we can do is a heart transplant. So that, at that stage there, when he said that, I was really, really saying heart transplant. So um, he kept on going on. He said, look, you warrant it. You know, um, you've had several cardiac arrests mm. and um, you're fit enough. So I think you do well on the table. Mm. And he gave me some little pointers to do. He says, look, I've got a team up in Birmingham who deal with amyloidosis patients. And um, they'll be happy to, to, to help you out um, and give you a heart transplant. So I'm going to refer you. Were you able to absorb everything you're saying in that moment? No, I didn't. At that time, I was just there, like, listening, but not listening. My wife wasn't in the room at the time. She had gone to the loo. When she entered the room, I said to him, look, just hold it there a minute. Could you just repeat everything you just said, because my wife is here? Hmm. She says, yeah, no worries. He totally understood. He could probably see from my facial expression that I, was, I didn't have a clue what he was talking about and that I, it didn't really sink in what he actually said. Mm. So um, he repeated it. And when he repeated it again, me and my wife looked at each other and that's when the tears rolled down from my eyes because that's when I knew my saving grace had arrived. Do you know, that was it. I just thought, oh my gosh. And then he continued to say, look, it's the perf- it's, that's the only hope you have. And it will get rid of the amyloidosis in your heart. You'll have a new heart and you'd be back to life again. Mm. And from then on, I just, it was like, I just couldn't wait. Mm. It was weird to actually tell people I'm going to have a heart transplant because it's such a big operation. Mm. It's a big thing. It mm. was just weird saying, look, I'm going to be going for a heart transplant. Mm. You know, and even some of the nurses were thinking, a heart transplant? I says, yeah. And it says, and one, I remember one of the nurses at my local hospital said um, the tests on that, is, like the initial assessment is quite deep, which it is. They test every single organ in your body. Hmm. So it's, a, it's over a course of a week. You've got to stay in the hospital for a week and they give you some lots of tests, hmm. lots of blood giving. 
They give you a fit test to see if you really do need it. They um they got you on the exercise bike, didn't they? Yes, they did um, during my initial assessment. Tell me about that. That bit was it's weird because because I still had that mental thing in me that I'm still fit. Like I'm, I've always been fit, like super fit. When I got on this bike, I lasted no more than a minute, probably a minute and a half. Mm. And I literally had to stop. And I remember the, the tester said to me, why did you stop? I said, I just couldn't go no more. He says, okay, no worries, that's fine. And when I got back to the room where my wife was, Again, I was quite emotional at those three stages. I started like crying again. Mm. And she says, what are you crying for? I says, look, I got on the bike and I only lasted a minute. So she says, well, she says, I know it, it sounds bad, but that's a good thing because if you lasted 10, 15, 20 minutes, then that means you won't be worried a heart transplant because that means you're fit enough mm. to continue walking about and go shopping and do what you want. Do you know what mm. I mean? And from then it made sense. I said, that's true. Do you know, there's no point in me trying to kill myself to try and stay on the bike for 15, 20 minutes. If one minute it is, and I'm out of breath, and muscle fatigue is sat in, yeah. then that's my time to stop. Yeah, but that pride and ego still um, takes it a was, hit. Yeah, it, it was in there, do you know. Um, so, yeah, and from there, they gave me some other tests, like blood tests. They've done a mini, kind of like a medical procedure mm. to test the function yeah. of my heart, the output of my heart. And then um, you have the surgery and you wake up with a new heart a little while later. Um, yeah. Um, no, it's not when I woke up. I, mean, I remember the first thing I did was just take a deep breath mm. just to see if I can breathe properly. <laughs> and the oxygen gets in there. Oh, it's lovely, yeah. The feeling was amazing. Describe that. Uh, it's very hard. That's the thing. Like, I think we take life for granted because, you know, if you're not sick or anything, you could take deep breaths without even thinking about, oh, that was lovely. But when you've not been able to take deep breaths and have to struggle to breathe for a prolonged length of time and you think, right, I'm going to take a deep breath here to see how it feels, mm. it was the best feeling ever. It was like, you know, on a, like a really cold, sunny, cold winter's day mm. where it's, the sun's out and you take that deep breath in and the air fills your lungs, like it's really mm. clear. It was like that. Do you carry this sense of gratitude today? Hundred percent. Yeah, I don't. I don't take don't take nothing for granted. The the gratefulness is everything that I I achieve now, whether it's training, whether it's you know even like simple things. If I can do multiple things at once, I just all I do is think back of what when I couldn't do it. Mm. But now, given this gift, has enabled me to get my life back. Mm. And. With heart transplants, it's it's um, someone has to die, which uh, is um, must be a, a strange and poignant thing to grapple with for you to live. Your donor, how much do you know uh, about your donor? Are you able to talk much about it, even in general terms? Yeah, I mean, I'm in contact with my my donor family. What I do know, he was male. He was a young male as well. Mm. He was interested in a lot of like cars and uh, bikes and stuff like that, mm. fast cars and bikes. I know he's a dad as well, a young dad. Mm. 
and that's about it. I mean, that's the communication we have. Um, I have um, communication with his mum. So she tells me bits about his hobbies and relationship they had and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't know how he passed away. Mm. It's, I mean, it could be a million things in one. Mm. Do, do, do you know what I mean? We, we haven't really got to that kind of stage as yet. Yeah. Um, because I totally understand as much as it's, 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 it's weird. It's, it's, it's weird because I'm happy, but you have to kind of have that empathy for the other side of the, of of defense of they've lost someone to give someone a life. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's it's such a hard thing to to comprehend. If you could magically get one message to this guy that that died and and whose heart now beats in you, what would you say to him? I would. It's it's, it's very hard. Um, although. In life, he's gone, but he's still alive, like within me. So there is, st- he's still here within me, if you know what I mean. Mm. So visually, he's not here, but I'm like keeping his kind of, it's very hard to explain. And you know, when I was coming in today, coming home, mm. I was thinking about this podcast and I was thinking, it's a lot of a lot of people have asked me that question and and I've heard it being asked to others and it's a very hard question. I've got a million one things to say if I was to ever meet the donor family. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm. What would you say um, to them? It's just like the, the gratitude I like to share with them, do you know. Um, more so like making that sacrifice and decision must have been such a hard thing to do. Do you know? Mm. And I would just like to let say, you know, what things they have done for, I mean, not just myself, because one donor can save nine lives. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's not just for myself, it's just for the others who he has, has saved. It's such a, it's like a wonderful thing mm. and a, a brave thing, what they've done. And to, to try and promote it amongst others mm. of, of what organ donation does is, is, is very special. Mm. So it's, it's just a share of gratitude, really, is, is what I would like to, to, to share with them. Mm. And it's something what I've thought about for, for a while now. If it's that next step I would like to take to try and meet them. Mm. I know some people don't, but for me, it's like, I think if you've got a connection, because we have quite a good connection with each other, it's made me want to get there. Some donor recipients don't have a connection at all with their donor family because they're just, the donor family just don't want that, mm-hmm. you know? But I think because we have a, a good connection, it's made me want to, to meet them and just be in their physical presence so they can see what the what, what a wonderful thing mm. they've done. Yeah, and his uh, wife was six months pregnant, I understand, when he died? Yeah, she was um, pregnant at that stage. So, you know, it's, it's such a sad, sad, sad thing, you know, and death brings so much sorrow, do, do you know what I mean? And like I said, 
the organ recipients are very joyful, which they should be, but then they have to have the other side of like, you know, that's why I make it so on my anniversaries mm. of um, when I receive my organ. Mm. It's not a massive celebration. It's a celebration of may, may so the organ, don- the organ donor's life as opposed to me receiving it. Yeah, you're giving thanks. Giving thanks. Yeah. This is exactly it, you know. And you've told me previously how once you um, began your new life with the new heart, you realised that your personality had changed a little bit or was different in some moments? Yeah, it's, it's, it's comprehending that you have another person's organ inside you to keep you alive. Because everyone else, I'm not sure, how, I'm not sure the statistics, but obviously it's probably high, have their own organs, what they're born with. So when you have such a, an important organ in your body, which, you're, which you wasn't born with, now inside your body, it's, it's very different to kind of comprehend that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, I used to feel different when I'm amongst people because I know I'm the only one with someone else's organ. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes I would kind of like get a little bit paranoid to think like, I'm, I'm the only different one here. Mm. How does that express itself in everyday life? It was hidden. It was hidden for me. It was just something I would deal with and meditate myself through through the day as the days go by. Mm. Even up to now, it's something I can um, grasp and cope with, but I think it sits in every single organ um, donor recipient's mind at all times Mm. because it's that gratitude that, wow, I'm still alive Mm. by someone else's organ inside me, mm. do you know? And it's just a, it's, it's, it's a nice feeling, but you do feel different. Mm. I feel that we're quite different people. Yeah. Excuse my ignorance here, but with yourself as a black man, were you more likely to get a matching heart from someone from the same ethnic background or is it all done on blood types? Um, it is done on blood, blood types. You can have an organ from someone who is not of the same race. You can. Mm. But for a better match is to have someone from the same race. Mm. Now, it is um, known that ethnic minorities do wait considerably longer for a match, an organ match, than white counterparts. Mm. Why is that? I think obviously because maybe the lack of organ donors on mm. the register from the ethnic minority, that must be the reason why. Because if there was more on there, then there wouldn't be um, a, such a long of a waiting mm. list to, for uh, ethnic minorities to get an organ. Mm-hmm. But now it's been, it's been quite pumped through organ donation now that, you know, they need black and ethnic minority people to start getting on the register. Hence the reason why they have the opt-out system, mm. which came into force, I think it was this year. Yeah, which means that, that everyone in the UK or every adult in the UK is yeah. by default an organ yeah. donor unless they actively opt out. Opt out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and that's a fantastic thing. So that will have a massive effect on 
the wait times and the numbers of organs available. Mm. Although it's still a problem because when it comes to that stage, because some people don't have that discussion of shall I, shan't I, mm. it's, it's, a, it's a hard discussion to have. With, uh, with your family? Yes. Mm. Do you know? So, and obviously there's various myths about organ donation with certain religions and stuff like that. But again, that's been pumped through where people have the, the, the knowledge and the specialist information to feed that through mm. that does it affect this religion, does it not, or does it affect certain faiths and, and so forth, mm. do you know? So um, to be honest, I was quite lucky to, to get mine. I got mine in four, in four weeks in total. Mm. Um, I was very lucky, but I think my height and size played a big part. Because uh, you're more likely to get a match that way? Yeah, because I've... Uh, I was quite lean. Mm. I wasn't overweight and stuff like that. It's it's the perfect ideal weight and height to get a good match. Mm. However, because obviously, if the heavier you are, the bigger the heart they need, mm. because your heart needs to transport your body around to do certain things. So if it's, if it's too small of a heart, then it's not a match. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know what so, the age difference is between you and the donor? I can say he's eighteen. Mm. He's probably nineteen now. Mm. If he was still alive, so. Um, and you were 40? I was 40, but I had it two, three years ago now, so I was 47. 47, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a big age difference. I've got a a young, a very young heart inside me. Mm. <laughs> and um, yeah. what are you not able to do now that you used to be able to do? I can do pretty much everything, mm. you know. Um, I can't really train how I used to, though. Mm. Um, and I think I've chose, I think I've chosen that way because I used to train quite really, really hard, like push my body through a lot. Mm. And I think from this heart transplant, I've kind of like eased myself back into training mm. and being happy with what I've adopted now. I can still train hard, yeah, but not intensely. And you were going to take part in the transplant games last yes, year, I was, but they got yeah. cancelled because of COVID, and yeah. they've been cancelled again because it's of COVID. Can- um, again, but I understand yeah. you are taking part in some transplant tournament later this year. I am, yes. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I'm going to be representing the Queen Elizabeth Birmingham mm-hmm. Hospital, and they've got two competitions um, coming up. One in October, which is the football. We're doing six-side football mm-hmm. against other transplant teams. Mm-hmm. And we've got a volleyball tournament, which is, uh, I would say, my favourite sport, um, in November against other transplant teams. So okay. good times coming up. Good luck. And, good luck, oh, Darren. I'm really looking forward to it, definitely. What was it like living through, um, well, we're still living through a pandemic, but what was it like yeah. at, at the height of the lockdowns last year and, and, and this year? Um, you're still like... It wasn't that long ago that you had the heart transplant. Yeah. At the start, I was a bit apprehensive. Went through just a slight little bit of a meltdown. Not a meltdown, shall I say. I would say because COVID was so rapid and and spreading, Hmm. and I knew I was immunosuppressant. Hmm. Because of the medication you're on. Because of the medication, Hmm. I was very vulnerable. And um, I thought to myself, I really shouldn't be going to work. I was on my way to work, Hmm. and I got to work, and I said. And you're a PE teacher uh, now. Yeah. Yeah. And I said to the work, I said, hmm, I don't think I should be here. And I kind of like was quite emotional at the time. And it says, yeah, I don't think you should be down. And it was from then they sent me home. And that's when the guidelines came out, to be fair, about two weeks afterwards. To shield. To shield. So um, I started shielding. And it, it took me a while to go back, to go outside. 
because like I said, it was it was quite prevalent the 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 virus, do you know? Mm. It was quite scary times. It took me about I would say three months to walk back outside my house. Mm. I was more so in my garden all the time, mm. exercising and the good thing was at the time of COVID when it first came, the weather was fantastic. So mm. being in the garden was just just a, a blessing. But yeah, it, it was it wasn't too bad. The only thing what kind of put a dampener on it was my appointments. Mm. So all my heart appointments, which require medical procedure, were cancelled. So they were done through telephone consultation. Now, normally, when you get go for a heart checkup, they give you a heart biopsy. And that checks if there's any rejection. Mm. So it's quite important, these checkups, to know that you're not rejecting. So not having a biopsy was kind of worrying. Although you would get symptoms if you was rejecting, I'm sure you would, mm. I still really wanted that biopsy, believe it or not. Um, and my medication couldn't be changed because they couldn't give me the blood tests, which kind of like had like a, a, a knock-on effect on my general health because there's certain medications which has certain side effects if they're not changed. And how is your health now in um, July 2021, almost three years on from the transplant? Yeah. Um, do you know, I think it's a work in progress. I think everyone everyone will recover at different stages. I know there's some transplant patients who are three years in and they're still like struggling to do, still struggling to do certain things, hmm. do you know? So I think we are a work in progress. I think whether or not our bodies will get back to how they were, I don't know. Hmm. But for me, I couldn't be no more content with what I'm feeling now. Hmm. Like I said, I can, I could do majority of things what other people can do, hmm. do you know? So, uh, yeah, I'll just I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing, trying to get better, and just keep on exercising what I've got inside me. Mm. You know, from three or four years ago, where the future was looking quite bleak. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. I thought, well, this is it. I lost so much um, muscle mass every in every part of my body. I'd lost it all. I'd gained. I'd worked so long for it, and it had gone in the space of you know two months. Mm. You know, so um, yeah, and tell me about the support that your wife's shown over the past uh, four or five years when you've been in some really poorly moments. Yeah, I, I couldn't ask for anything more from her, really. She's been very supportive, she's always been with me. She, she attended every single checkup, you know. Um, even when I was up in Birmingham, we lived in Essex, we live in Essex, so lucky enough, I have a friend in Birmingham. Mm. and my wife was able to stay at her house for the duration mm-hmm. of the time when I was in Birmingham getting my um, treat, my transplant done, mm. which helped massively. So she was staying in Birmingham midweek, going home for the weekend, and then coming back up for the week. Mm. So it worked perfectly for her. Um, she was running around. She was like a robot, basically. <laughs> she, and, and that's what she describes it as. She said, look, I was like a robot. Mm. you know I, I was just so zoned in um i knew what i had to do mm. um and each day it was just nice you know we spent some really we, we'd still talk about it now like the fun times we have when 
you know, when I was able to go to the ward after my transplant, you know, she was there first thing in the morning, like after breakfast and stuff, about 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm. And we would just spend the whole day at hospital, just chatting, laughing. And you'd think hospitals can be boring. They can be, but we're just based in one room, one ward, but just enjoying each other's company. And she would go off. Mm. You know, like I said, it was, she was just so supportive for every, even through my worst times, because I think... When I was really sick, obviously, it takes a toll on your mental health. So you can become snappy. You can become um, kind of antisocial because you just don't want to socialise because you can't. Hmm. But she was so understandable in every aspect of what I hit. Like, you know, okay, that's fine. Hmm. Even at the times with, with eating, I mean, I couldn't eat food at all because I just haven't, didn't have an appetite. So I would call and say, oh, could you make me this? Because she would cook my food for me and bring it up because I just couldn't take hospital food. <laughs> mm. So I would feel for something. I would say, oh, could you cook me this, please? And she'll cook it. She'll bring it for me. She'll plate it up. <laughs> and I would say, I don't want it. Mm. Not, do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> I just lost my appetite. Yeah, yeah. I think she's the real hero of this story, Darren. <laughs> well, she is. That's the thing. She is. She is. Mm. That's what I'm saying. I mean, she she played such a massive part from start to finish. Mm. Even now, you know, um, she plays a massive part. She definitely is the hero. I mean, like I said, from from the cardiac arrest till now, I think if if she didn't act the way she did on that morning, mm. who knows? Well, I hope she listens to this, Darren. Yep, I'm sure she will. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about it is when like we tell the stories like generally over the dinner table or whatever, she takes all the glory because as soon as I say, Well, how did how did you survive? And I say, Well, my wife, the focus is on her straight away because mm. people are just like, Wow. Mm. And you're now forty nine. Forty nine, yeah. And uh as I say, almost three years since um the heart transplant. How do you see the future from here? Future from here is, do you know what? I really would like to share my and give other people who's been in these kind of situations some kind of hope and some kind of understanding of, you know, just never give up. Mm. Hence the reason why I would like to, well, I'm going to be doing a counselling course, mm-hmm. a counselling degree. So, and try and specialise in something with, with, with heart health, not heart health, but... Um, ill health, shall I say, mm. of people coping, coping mechanisms, what people can use mm. um, to get through these kind of times rather than trying to give up. What have you learned? What little uh, snippets of wisdom can you pass on now? Just be positive. I always say, you know what, positivity is the best drug out there. Do you know, it beats all the medications. Do you know what I mean? If you've got a positive mind, then there is that goal. A negative mind will bring everything down to think, well, there's no hope because you won't be bothered mm. if that happens. If that happens, you just won't try. Mm. And my positivity throughout this journey, even now, is seeing me through. Mm. You know, um, I've always been scared of needles, any kind of medical procedures. I've never really been in hospital. So the stuff what I've had done to me numerous times, and I've just had to think, you know what, it's for the best. Mm. Do you know, the amount of drainages, because I used to hold a lot of water during my really ill times, 
they used to drain me all the time and that's a horrible procedure <laughs> do you know what I mean mm. and I used to think I'm not again mm. um, but I, I just looked for positivity the future well this is for the best it's for my and not just my health mm. but it's for people around me do you know because they always say the worst part of, of death is the people who miss you do you know what I mean so it's trying to doing it for them and yourself mm. Darren, uh, thank you very much for talking with me and, and sharing the story. Um, and we wish you all the very best. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. It's been a pleasure and uh, happy to help and I'm happy to get involved. Around 200 heart transplants are carried out on adults in the UK each year. And in the 40 years since BHF-funded research helped to make heart transplants a reality, the research and outcomes for patients have gone from strength to strength. Today, one of the biggest challenges is to avoid infection while someone's immune system is weakened after a transplant. When someone receives a donor heart, they must take medication to suppress the whole immune system so that their body doesn't reject it. But this leaves them vulnerable to infections. Our BHF-funded professors, however, are working on fine-tuning this immune suppression so that the body accepts the new heart, while being better able to fight off infections. If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, Call the BHF's Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Monday to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email helpline at bhf.org.uk. You'll also find lots of useful information in the episode notes and on our website bhf.org.uk. See you next time on The Ticker Tapes. <laughs>